0: Well, we're going to go ahead and, and get started in a new series. Like Pastor Joseph said, we're starting the Gospel of John. And uh, this is going to be a good one. It's going to be a long one. I think this is going to take us. Um, if we did every Sunday, um, with what we have scheduled out, we'd be done sometime in the middle of May of next year. But that's not counting Christmas services and Easter services and our Who We Are series and all that stuff. So we're probably looking um, June or July of next year, we'll finish this up. But we're going verse by verse, we're not skipping anything, and we're going to deal with the entire Gospel of John, and I think that you're going to be blessed, amen? So the Gospel of John, like all the other Gospels, tells the story of Jesus and his life on earth. However, John's gospel starts a little bit different. So we have uh, Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus and how um, Jesus is connected to David and to Abraham. Mark starts with the preaching of John the Baptist who is going to be heralding in Jesus. And Luke actually starts with a greeting uh, to Theophilus telling him that he intends to write accurately about the events of Jesus. It's a historical record. And then he starts off, with the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. But John is different. John starts quite a bit different than the rest of them because he actually starts with a theological discussion of the nature of who Jesus is. Because see, not only does John want us to to learn about Jesus's actions and his teaching while he was on earth, but he wants us to understand who Jesus really is, the nature of who Jesus is, so that we recognize and we understand the impact of the teachings and the actions of jesus christ on the earth because the truth is is you don't really get a a true understanding a true sense of what jesus was doing unless you know who he was and that is jesus was god in the flesh amen another thing you'll notice about the gospel of john is it is the most theological of all the gospels the rest of them seem to be more historical in content, but the, the gospel of John is, is more theological. And it's an interesting thing. Up until the 18th century, and, and uh, this isn't something I wrote down in my notes, this is something I was, as I was studying and reading about, is that the gospel of John was considered um, the most important gospel. It was the one that everybody relied upon until the 18th century when people started to criticize the gospel of John. And one of the things that they began to say was that listen the, the words that are used are very much like uh, the Greek philosophical teachings. It, it was, they, they were beginning to criticize it for being um, the story of Jesus fashioned in like a Greek mythological uh, sense so it would be good for the Greek people but they've done since done studies and they found um, um, Actual uh, archaeological digs and, and other records of what was going on, and it turns out that it wasn't just John that was talking like this. This was actually how the Christians were speaking back then. So it turns out it wasn't just something adapted for the Greeks and, and turned Jesus into a mythological tale, but it actually was what it says it is, that the teachings of Jesus Christ, and we can trust what we find in it. Amen? Um, as I mentioned... Um, the author of, of the Gospel of John is, surprise, surprise, the Apostle John. Um, this is John, the son of Zebedee. He's one of the sons of thunder. How a rowdy and loud do you think those guys had to be for Jesus to call them the sons of thunder? <laughs> but wouldn't you know, turns out every time I study these, these books in depth, there's so many people that can test different things. And there are many who can test that, that it wasn't actually the Apostle John that wrote the Gospel of John. And the reason for this is there's actually no reference to the identity of the author in the book. If you read through the entire gospel, it never references who the author is. However, there is very strong evidence from the early church fathers that the author was John. That is what tradition has always held in the early church. Um, in addition, in this gospel, the author uh, uh, references himself as an eyewitness. Well, to be an eyewitness to all of these events, you have to be one of the apostles. So that's that's at least saying it's one of the apostles. Um, John the Apostle is also not mentioned anywhere by name in this book. But John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is mentioned by John. Some have said, well, maybe John the Baptist wrote this. But it seems weird that he would never refer to the Apostle John as John, but he would refer to himself as John. So it's more uh, likely that the Apostle John would be referring to the John the Baptist as John. We also find that the author knows an extremely large amount about Palestine and, uh, Palestine and Jewish customs, which would also make sense if it were the Apostle John because he was a Palestinian Jew and, uh, from Galilee. And uh, while it may be impossible to know, for 100%, you know, 100% who wrote the Gospel of John, both the internal and the external evidence indicates that it actually was John who wrote this, this Gospel. So I think we can be safe in assuming that as well. Um, this Gospel was written in about 85 to 90 AD, so it's a relatively early writing um, and tradition, although it doesn't mention in here. Um, Uh, who it's being written to or where it was written. Tradition says that John wrote it in Ephesus before he was uh, sent out to the island. Um, And the purpose of this gospel, and actually John states it later on, I think it's in chapter 20, flat out says that the reason I wrote this is to persuade you to believe in Jesus. The whole purpose of the gospel of John is the persuasion of people to believe in Jesus. It aims to produce faith in Jesus Christ as the son of God And it also is to teach us that not only is he the son of God, but he is in fact fully God himself. Amen? Amen. And then finally, the goal was really to convince those who had not seen Jesus to believe in him. Those who already believed in him to increase and strengthen their faith. And for those who had seen Jesus, but they didn't believe in him, he wanted them to believe in Jesus. So that's the whole purpose of this gospel is, is it really is to persuade people to believe in Jesus Christ. So, with that introduction out of the way, let's go ahead and get started. In John 1, 1-3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, like I said, John begins this gospel with a theological discussion of the person and nature of Jesus Christ. It begins describing who Jesus is. And I love this passage because I love how it's written. Now, I have the mind of an engineer. I I think like an engineer. I like math, and, and that kind of stuff makes sense to me. And this is essentially written out like a math problem. Who knew that all those math classes, in math class, all those word problems that everybody hated would help you understand the gospel? But here it is, we have a a math word problem to help us understand the nature of Jesus Christ. So do you guys remember when you were in school, probably beginning algebra, uh, uh, the the transitive law? Does anybody remember what that was? That's right, I didn't remember what it was called either, I had to look it up. But I remembered, I remembered what the law was, and that's the one that says, if A equals B, and B equals C, then A equals C. That's the law, so if A equals B, and B equals C, then A equals C. That's the transit of law. And I want you to keep this in mind as we go through this, because we actually only get the first part of the problem right now. And it's what he's trying to teach us. In the beginning was the Word. So we have the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God is A. And God equals the word, A equals B, God equals the word. Keep that in mind, write it down, whatever you have to do to remember it, because we're going to get back to that. But you're going to see how simple it is to show that Jesus is, in fact, fully God. But with that out of the way, with that uh, lingering in the back of our minds, let's go ahead and start digging into what John is beginning to try to teach us. So our understanding of what John is trying to teach us depends on our understanding of the word, logos. It's the craziest word. It's spelled L-O-G-O-S, and it's pronounced logos. We need to talk to the Greeks about the pronunciation. That just doesn't make any sense. It should be logos. But it's pronounced logos. That's the Greek word for word. And in the Greek language, and truthfully, theologians and philosophers, um, both Jews and the Greeks, use this word, the idea of, of the word, a lot in their teachings. In Greek teaching, the philosophers... Uh, said it it could uh, could refer to someone's thoughts or their reason or it could refer to a person's speech or their expressed thoughts or it could actually refer to the rational principle that governed the universe or the creative energy that made the universe that's how greek philosophers greek teachers in the greek world would use that word logos and the hebrew language we see the, the word um, for word used as, as God's agent of creation. Um, you'll find in the Old Testament that is also referred to as God's message that he, he reveals through his prophets, and it's also another one used for God's law. So this, this idea of, of word is used in, in many different ways. It turns out there's a lot of words like that. We have those, those words in our life that mean many different things all the time right? Something being cool can mean two things, right? Same word, two things. Same thing here. We have this, the, the word referred to as a lot of different things. And John's a smart man. He understands how these people are teaching. And it's likely that when he was teaching this stuff, he was playing on those different meanings of the word as well. But the one thing that we see John do different that nobody else does is he refers to the word as a person, we find that because the word was with God and the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. So now we not only have the word as God's thoughts or, 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 or what God, when he spoke and he created the, the, the universe, all these things, now we have something different. The word is actually a person. And right now, John doesn't tell us who this person is. But it begins to teach us of the nature of this person. First, we find out that this person was with God from the very beginning. He was in the beginning with God. Um, This beginning that it's talking about is in in reference to creation, the beginning of the creation of the world or the universe, our beginning, if you will. And being with God also indicates a personal relationship with God. So this person had a relationship with God. And this is from before the earth, the world, the universe was ever created. This is why humans are actually so dependent on human relations and relationship and and being in fellowship with one another It's because that's how we were created. We were created in God's image and God has always been a relational being. From the beginning, there was the word who was a person that was with God and not only was he with God, it then goes on to say that this person was God. Now, I've done some teaching on the Trinity and how all this works, and I get it. It's something hard for us to understand because the truth is, is we have nothing to relate it to. It doesn't, it, there's nothing in our life that has the same properties of the Trinity, where it is three different persons, completely distinct, existing at the same time, but also one God, But here's where we're beginning to see that. We have the Word being with God, but also the Word being God. And all creation was made through the Word. They were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. You see, this is further evidence of this person's deity, the Word's deity, is because in order to create something before anything was ever created, you have to be outside of creation. This demonstrates that the word itself is not created because it was already existed before creation came into existence. It stands outside of those things that came into place when the earth was created matter, space, and time. Those all exist together, they rely on one another. If you've done any kind of physics uh, studying, you know that, that those three rely on one another space, matter, and time. But But the word was outside of those things. The word was with God outside of those things and created all those things. Everything that we see around us was created through him and by him. And as we'll soon see, this person is actually Jesus Christ. In verse four through five, it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, John begins to to start speaking on some themes that he's going to use over and over in the gospel of John, and that's life, light, and darkness. Life is one of our greatest gifts, and it's an asset that's given to us by God. Both our physical and our spiritual life actually came through him. The reason we have life at all is because God gave it to us, Without God, there would be no life. And then we see this, this this theme of light as well, and light is always symbolic of God when it's used in the Gospels. And then we also have this theme of darkness, which is symbolic of death or sin or separation from God or the prince of darkness, Satan himself. And as we go on, we talk about this life, this, 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 what we have that was given by God. We find that... that In him, in the Word, was life. Jesus is the source of the life that we have. Creation without Jesus is dead. It needs the life received from the Word to be anything other than dead. And in creation, Jesus gave physical life to the Word, to the world. But after the fall, Jesus. Now gives eternal life to all those who would believe in his name. And in either case, Jesus is always the source of the life that we possess. Amen. And then it says, his life is the light of men. And his light shines into darkness, it exposes it and it drives it out. And the power of Jesus' light always overcomes the darkness, no matter how great or Uh, how powerful that darkness seems his light always drives it away one of the things that i I love is this analogy of light being used for god and 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 the enemy and the power of the enemy is darkness because it's such a brilliant description or analogy because of the way we we can see and understand how light works has anybody ever seen a dark light we have flashlights but we don't make dark lights you want to know why because dark can never push away the light. Light can only push away dark. It doesn't matter how dark it is, no matter how bad it is, you flip on a flashlight, and the light will always drive away darkness. It never works in the other direction. It is impossible for darkness to encroach into light. Matter of fact is, the truth is, is darkness is just an absence of light. And it's his light that shines and drives away the darkness in the lives of men. And no matter how great that darkness might be, his light will always prevail, amen. And then in John 1, 6 through 8, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And now here we see John kind of make a brief shift He shifts away away from from the word and the nature of the word to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was actually sent as the forerunner and the herald of Jesus Christ. He's the one that cried in the wilderness and said, make way. He's the one that was calling and preparing a way for Jesus his purpose, and the reason was he was sent was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was to tell everyone about this light that was coming so that everyone would believe in the light. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that might all might all believe through him. And the thing is, is John was a, a, a pretty amazing man. He was a great man. Matter of fact, Jesus says so himself. in, in Luke 7.28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than john john was a great man but he wasn't the light and he even said so himself you remember when when he was was preaching and baptizing people he says listen in luke 3 16 um, he says he's not even worthy of untying the straps of jesus's sandals when he came you see john's purpose was to point to jesus to let everyone know that he was coming And that's the interesting thing, and we're going to find in a second, is that Jesus was heralded. They knew he was coming. The world knew he was coming. The world should have been ready, waiting to receive him, but that's not what happens. What we find is that the world actually rejects him, that his own people reject him. But John came saying that, listen, there's one coming. He's the light. He's the one that's going to take away your sins. He's the light of the world. He's going to send out darkness. He says, it's not me, but I came to bear witness about the light. And he continues in John 9 uh, through chapter 1, 9 through 11, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now we've switched back from John bearing witness about the light to talking about the light again. And this is the 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 true light. The word has not been revealed to us as we're reading this letter to be to be Jesus yet. But in verse 9 it says the word is coming into the world. And for those of us who have spent any time reading the Bible, studying the Bible, we know that what it's referring to is the first coming of Christ when he comes and lives ready to give his life. It's referring to when Jesus came and lived and walked among men as men, as a man. And when he came, his light would be available to all who would believe. This true light when he came would be available to all who would believe in him. But the problem was, is that when he came into this world, Even though the entire world was made by him and through him, the world didn't know him. You know, that's one of the things that's interesting for me to think about as I read this is Jesus came into the world, and now this is talking collectively as the world as a whole, and the world didn't know him. But from the beginning, the Jewish people were supposed to be telling people about God. I mean, in an ideal situation, if the Jewish people would have been obedient, there wouldn't have been anybody who wasn't a Jew left on the earth. Kind of like right now, if we were in an ideal situation and Christians were obedient and did what they were supposed to be, there wouldn't be anybody left that's not a Christian. Because we'd be able to share the light with everyone. So when Jesus came, instead of of the world knowing about him and, and receiving, it didn't even know about him. And then it says when Jesus came to his own, when the word came to his own, his own people didn't receive him. Now it's likely that this is being more specific speaking of the Jewish people. Jesus came to his own people, God's own people. And not only did they not know him, but they rejected him. The the ones who should have recognized him, the ones who had all the information, The ones who should have received him with the most joy rejected him. And they were without excuse. It's it's amazing to me that they had all the knowledge, they had all the stuff, and they still pushed Jesus away. And then when I get all high on my horse thinking about that stuff, God reminds me how long I rejected him, how long I pushed him away. But the truth is, is that that he should have been received with great joy, with open arms. But instead he was rejected. He came to his own, his own people, and they did not receive him. And this seems to be like a one of those things that that, that, that kind of just puts the whole world in peril because it says the entire world didn't know him. All of his people didn't reject that rejected him. But the truth is, is there that even though this is a a general statement, there were some who did. In verse 12 to 13, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Have you ever seen those bumper stickers that say we're all God's children? There was a... uh, a mural. Uh, I think if if you drove down Alvernon near the the park over there, there's a mural that used to say, we're all God's children. (laughs) Turns out this is wrong. We're not all God's children. Only those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ can claim to be God's children because it's only them who he's given the right to be called God's children. Now, it's true that we're, everyone's God's children in the sense that they're part of creation, but they're not actually part of the family. They don't actually have an inheritance. They don't actually have the right to be called children of God if they don't believe in his name. And this is, like I said, a follow-up to that verse before. It says, listen, nobody knew him. Everybody rejected him, but there were some who believed in him. And now these people who put their trust in Him, they're part of the family. They are now children of God. And then it goes on to say, they're children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. So this, this being born into the family is not talking about natural childbirth. A person is not part of God's family because of their, of their natural birth, of where they were born. Even if you're born into a Jewish or a Christian family, you still don't have the right to be called a child of God unless you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Your parents can't do it for you, your friends can't do it for you. You have to put your own trust in Jesus Christ to be called a child of God. And being born into this family of God is not the result of human will or some act of passion, and it has nothing to do with any human plan, but it actually has everything to do with God's plan. And it's God's working in you that brings you into the family. What he's referring to here, who are born out of blood, is is being born again, and that's what we're called to do: is be born again. And when this happens, it is a gift of God, and it is a supernatural occurrence. One of the 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 worst things that we can think is that when we get born again, it's just a mental decision that we made to live a different life. Because that's not all it is. Being born again, the moment that you do that, you put your trust in Him, a supernatural miracle takes place, and who you were is removed and replaced with the the life of Jesus Christ. You are not who you used to be. You used to be in bondage to, to, to darkness and bondage to sin and bondage to death, but now you are set free because you have a brand new life inside of you. All the stuff that you did, all the sin, all the, all the, uh, the, the falling and the messing up and all that stuff is, is, is taken away and it's replaced with the perfect life of Jesus Christ. You are born again. You are brand new. You're no longer who you used to be. It is a supernatural miracle, not the will of man, but a supernatural miracle of God the moment that you're born again. Amen. Amen. And then he continues on in verse 14 through 15. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, this is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. So now John is returning again to the nature of the Word. And the preceding verses have dealt with the Word's relationship to God and to creation. It has shown that he was the world's rejected light and savior, but up to now, John hasn't said that the Word was a human. He's a person that we can infer because of the use of personal pronouns, it refers to the Word as a he, so we know it's a person. But now we get to see that this person is a human. He was made flesh. Now you've got to understand that John is about to blow everybody's mind by saying this, because this idea of God becoming a human is so foreign to everybody in that time. This is not something that, that happened or could happen. And the reality is, is even today, it's not something that most people went understanding as, as, as could happen. God had come in the flesh. And more importantly than that, not only had he come in the flesh, he still remained fully God. So now Jesus is living on earth as a man. He is fully man, but he is still fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He didn't stop being God when he became a man. And if you want to, to dig deeper into that, I've done messages on that. You can find them on our YouTube channel where I talk about the Trinity. And one of those messages, or two of those messages, one is speaking of Jesus being fully man and the other one is speaking of Jesus being fully God. Today we're going to see a little bit of, of, of demonstration in the scripture saying that Jesus is God. But there's much more evidence. And if you want to see it, I'd encourage you just search those up and you can listen to those again. But this is a big deal that now God is coming as fully man. This is Jesus walking the earth. And this is a big deal because before Jesus, men could only know God partially. But after Jesus, we can know him fully. Because now we can actually see him. He lived among us. He was a person. And he was the perfect expression of God in human form when he lived as a man on this earth. And even John recognized who Jesus was because he says, listen, I bore witness about him. I cried out, this is the one whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. John the Baptist is older than Jesus as far as their human and their human relations. But why then does John say he was before me? Because even John understood who Jesus was. Jesus was always there. Jesus is God. And then verse 16 through 17, it says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It says, And from His fullness, in other words, just more reiteration, that He didn't become less because He was human. We have received grace upon grace. Jesus is never lacking in any way. And when John says, we have all, he's not referring to him just himself. He's not referring to just him and the other apostles. He's referring to all Christians inclusive, all of us. Christ is our all in all. He is everything. He is the fulfillment of, our complete fulfillment, and we don't have to seek anything else from anyone other than Him. There is not something that we're missing that we have to find elsewhere. He fulfills everything in us, and His grace and blessing can never be exhausted. And Jesus is the answer to the question of whether God's love and His love contradict. Because both the law and and his love in Jesus expresses the nature of God. The law, which was given through Moses, expresses God's righteousness and justice. And if that's all you had was the law, it's, it's difficult to fully understand who God is because you just see a, a, a right God extracting judgment and punishment on those who don't live up to the standard that he has set. And he has to remain righteous. He has to remain just because these are characteristics of God. If he stops being righteous, if he stops being just, he's no longer God because these are intrinsically who God is. They're part of his nature. But then we see Jesus come and express his love because Jesus represents God's mercy. His love and his forgiveness for each and every one of us. And it's interesting that both law and the love reveal the nature of God. All of these things are God's nature. God is right, God is just, but he is also forgiving. He also has mercy and he also loves. So Jesus was the answer to solve the issue of of the two that seemed to contradict. But one came on cold stone tablets. And the other came in the life and person of Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, Jesus, both the law and love are satisfied. I love how God satisfied his law in Jesus. It's always been brilliant to me. And it's also one of the reasons why I believe that Christianity is the only true religion he is the only way the truth in the life is because every other religion every single one of them is about what you can do to get right with god it's about all the things that you have to do all the steps that you have to take all the plans that you have to follow and if you do all of these things perfectly then maybe just maybe you can't really know but just maybe you'll tip the scales in your favor Christianity is the only one that's different. Instead of us going to God, God came to us in his son. Instead of saying you have to do this, this and this to be right with me, he says, "You know what? There's no way you can be right with me the moment that you made one misstep. At that moment, you were no longer right, and there's nothing that you can do except give up your own life to pay for that sin, for that failure. We were we were dead in our trespasses. Dead in our sins, there was no way out. But then he sent his son to pay the penalty, the price for us. And this is brilliant because In our minds, this is another reason why I don't believe that man made up this religion because this is not how we would do it. You look at the story of Christianity and the story of Christ. This is not how man would save the world. He wouldn't send a baby. He he would send, just like they thought he was going to do, a king, someone powerful to deal with it. Or why wouldn't God just go ahead and, and just wipe sin away? He could just ignore it, right? He's God. He can do what he wants. But the moment he ignores sin, he's no longer just. He's no longer right. Therefore, he's no longer God. So God made a way in his son to both stay righteous, stay just, but also express his mercy, grace, and love towards us because God stepped out of heaven, lived as a man, gave his life to pay the penalty for us. So even though we were dead in our trespasses, he paid the penalty in his son. That's where we get grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ. (laughs) Through Jesus, both the law and love are satisfied. And then we also get the final part of that math problem I was telling you about. You remember we had earlier, God equals the word, A equals B. B. And then here we find out that the the Word is Jesus Christ. So, if God equals the Word, and the Word equals Jesus Christ, then God equals Jesus Christ. It's amazing to me how simple it is, and it's written out there. And like I said, if you want more evidence, look up some of those other messages. We talk about all the evidence that Jesus Christ was fully God. And the thing is, that's important. Because if he wasn't God and he gave his life on that cross, his life would have been equal to one life. But because he was God, because he is infinite, he is able to pay the penalty for each and every one of us. Amen? And then we'll go ahead and wrap up this uh, first 18 verses, often referred to as the prologue of the Gospel of John. He says, no one has ever seen God, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. At the end of this passage, it seems like John ends with an almost contradictory or an incorrect statement says no one has ever seen God and those of you who are astute and have done a little bit of reading your Bible can say wait a minute I'm pretty sure I read in the Old Testament multiple times where it says they saw God matter of fact the most prominent one would be Moses (laughs) saw God so we have to ask what is he talking about it's unlikely that that John would have got something like that so wrong so what does he actually mean here? Well, before Jesus, no one had ever known God fully, seen God fully. Only the Son had that privilege. But when Jesus came to the earth, we can now fully know God Jesus the only God who is at as another one or just flat out calls him God <laughs> the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known Jesus when he came to the earth we can see God in his fullness the fullness of God completely expressed in human form through Jesus we can finally see him visibly and tangibly we can know him like we've never known him before we have a complete revelation of the will of God in Jesus Christ Jesus is God, and through him, because he became like us, we can fully know him. That's what he's saying here. No one has ever seen God. No one's ever known God fully, except for Jesus, who is at the Father's side. But Jesus has made him known to us, amen. And that is such a great privilege, such a great honor that we can know our God, have a relationship with him. That's amazing to me. Amen. We'll we'll go ahead and wrap up there this morning. Hope you guys got something good out of it. And uh, we'll go ahead and continue right on through it next week.